really got cranked by Ulf Samuelson in uh, last night's OT loss to the Rangers. We saw it earlier on the telecast, but you got right up. Uh, are you a little bit stronger than some people give you credit for? Well, Mr. Chair is going to be happy. Maybe I will do the highlight on his video. Maybe I will do the, the front page or something. But uh, no, That's rock and docking quality, I think. Exactly. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jancy. Tim, how's it going, sir? It's going good, going good. It was funny, we were doing yard work yesterday, and uh, this morning it snowed, and we've got six inches up there. Are you serious? Yeah. Man, freaking Calgary, eh? Yeah, it'll probably all be gone by tomorrow, too. Yeah, is that that's pretty typical of Calgary, isn't it? I mean, you've lived here for what, what four years now. This is third winter now. Okay. Was yeah, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have known that like by yesterday, like my entire backyard like melted off. We went out, raked it up, did the weeding, that sort of thing, and yeah, now it's just covered in snow again. Although, ah, having the snow isn't too bad because uh, it it melts slowly and it ends up in the it stays in the ground better, so good to see excellent man excellent so tim i'm very excited to get together today not only because we actually get to talk about some games for once not only because we get to talk about some news stories but because we've got a big name cover athlete for today's episode today's episode is season four episode 14 in chronological order episode 91 the alexander dag edition of the third line plug sensecast so, just a little background about Alexander Degg. He was drafted first overall by the Ottawa Senators in 1993. He spent four and a half seasons with the Ottawa Senators recording 74 goals, 98 assists for 172 points in 301 games. He was later traded to the Philadelphia Flyers in 1998 for Pat Falloon and Vladdy Prospol. Would bounce around the NHL before exiting the NHL in nine, in, after the 99-2000 season. Would later make a comeback with the Pittsburgh Penguins for the 0203 season before playing two seasons with Minnesota, departing the NHL for a second time in 2006 for a four-year career with HV Davos in Switzerland. So, Tim, Alexander Degg is one of these players that I've actually been looking forward to talking about him as a cover athlete. And I'm actually going to try something a little different here because usually uh-huh. with... Our cover athletes, we always talk about what was our favorite memory, do you remember this player as a senator, stuff like that. We're going to call an audible, and we're going to do a quick discussion point. So for those who don't know, discussion point is a segment where Tim and I will look at a usual like a news story, something we see online, or a hot take, and we give our thoughts on it. Now given that Alexander Degg 
was dra- taken first overall, and since then he's widely been considered one of the biggest draft busts of all time. I feel this is a very important topic to bring up. So for discussion point, I actually want to ask the all-important question. With the other first overall picks like Patrick Steffen and Nail Yakupov having lesser careers, should Alexander Day still be considered as one of the biggest draft busts of all time? Now, Well, I think this it, question had been settled when Patrick Stefan flamed out harder and faster than Dag did, that Dag wasn't the worst. But uh, for a number one guy to come out and say, I'm good, no one remembers number two, and then never post a 30-goal season, that's some powerful shit. It is pretty powerful. But I'm actually going to go and say, I don't know if you're going to agree with this, Tim. I think the answer to this question is no. Biggest bust in Ottawa Senators history, absolutely. Because the Ottawa Senators have only held the first overall pick four times in their history. 93, 95, 96, and 2001. Yeah. Dag, Brian Berard that later turned to Wade Redden, Chris Phillips, Jason Spezza. And... We're going to try something a little bit different here, Tim, because usually with Discussion Point, like we would always talk about, give our thoughts on it and all that so, but we're actually going to do something a little bit different here. I'm going to share my screen with you because uh-huh. I brought up the hockey DB of the three men, Dag, Stefan, and now Yakupov. So let's have a look at Alexander Dag. Now, of course, you got to realize, like, if you look at his numbers, given how... The Ottawa Senators had such a lack of talent on that franchise. I gotta admit, that's a not a bad stat number. 51 points in 84 games. Of course, he went back to Victoriaville Tigra, the QMA JHL, play his half of the season with them. And the thing for Deg is that he was really him and Yashin were really guys on an island in Ottawa. They had no other talent around them. So obviously, I can't. On one hand, I can't really blame Dag for putting up the lack of numbers because you got to realize the 95-96 season, as you see here, 50 points, 17 or sorry, 17 points in 50 games. Now he was injured for quite a bit of that season. The season after, he scored 25 goals. Yeah, that's nothing to sneeze at. Now, of course, as a first overall pick, you would say that's not amazing, especially because number two of that draft was Chris Pronger. Remember, we do draft we. We grade drafts on a curve. Yeah, yeah, because so I... like if you like if you're not competing compared to the rest of your draft, then it's a problem. We don't look at Chris Phillips and say, "Oh, you're not a generational talent," because that '96 draft was lackluster. That was hands down the single worst draft that's ever been done. There's just no ifs or buts about that. Really, when Chris Phillips goes number one. Which, yeah. Philly is a great player, and, uh, and I'm not... he, in any other draft, he'd be a, a first-rounder for sure. Yeah, but it just goes to show the lack of overall yeah. talent in that first round. Now, of course, there was, always the, there was always the talk about his lack of work ethic and his lack of passion for the game, and everyone's really talking about Alexander. So I actually want to go ahead and bring up Patrick Steffen. Now, Steffen's a bit of a different story here, as you can see. 25 points in 72 games as a rookie. 
Kind of a similar story with Dag in Ottawa. The only problem was Patrick Steffen was always injured. So that really hampered his development in the NHL. So, yeah, okay, I can kind of see where they're arguing here. But the only full season he had, he had 40 points. And the 0304 Thrashers team, from a talent standpoint, was not a bad team. They were in a very tough division, absolutely, and that's why they ended up not making the playoffs that year. But when you think about it, when you have Ilya Kolvachuk, a very young Ilya Kolvachuk, now, of course, Danny Heatley was in the tragic car accident that summer, so he didn't play much that year. So, okay. I just don't see that Dag is really the should be considered that, right? When you look at here's Dag's numbers. Fair enough. Here is Nail Yakupov. Yakupov. His rookie season was that lockout short of 2012-2013. So 31 points in 48 games for a rookie season. Honestly. It's not knock your socks off, but I wouldn't just say like that was a bad for a number one pick, especially given 2012 wasn't particularly strong either, was it? As a draft, no. But... Yakupov's an exception here because Edmonton had quite a bit of talent. You had Nugent Hopkins there. Taylor Hall was there. You had Jordan Eberle. So it, he only had, really has himself to blame. And a lot of Oilers fans really did not like Yakupov after his stint there. And as you can see, he only lasted four seasons there. Went to St. Louis, then Colorado, and now he's in the K, uh, KHL. So... No, I, I don't think that Alexander Degg should be considered as one of the biggest draft busts in league history. Ottawa Senators history, um, absolutely. I'm going to hold you there. Okay. You've just looked at two other players. If you're, if we're going to be talking about distributions, I saying that there are two players worse than him still puts him among the worst busts. So, like, I'd say that he's... He wasn't the worst because, yeah, you had Patrick Stefan and Neil Yakupov's flameouts in the last tw- in the tw- almost thirty years now intervening the draft of Dag and the current day, and there's been worse. But for a number one pick, Dag is still pretty bad. I think among the worst is a fair qualifier, but not the worst. To actually come out and say he's not among the worst, more work needs to be done. So basically, you would have to go take all the number one picks and basically compare how their careers went compared to the rest of the draft and then sort them by a distribution. I would honestly believe that Dag would be near the bottom of that distribution, especially because that 92 draft was a good draft. Sorry, that 93 draft was a good draft. It was, but again, when you put him alongside Dag and Stefan, no, sorry, not Dag and Stefan, no, Stefan and Yakupov, one of... Yeah, that's your bottom three. One of, I'm going to say, okay, those two what, are worse than Dag, but those three probably round out from the bottom. But here's the wild card. What about Rick DiPietro? That's a wild card. Rick DiPietro's Rick. probably in there, too. Yeah. No, it's not even a wild card. I'd put Rick DiPietro at the bottom of that distribution. But would you put too. him in the top three? That's the thing, though. Absolutely, Yakupov and Stefan are there, but do you put Dag in that, or do you put Rick DiPietro? I'd probably put Dag above DiPietro, especially because look at the names below Dag. Chris Pronger, 
Paul Correa, Rob Niedermeyer, Victor Kozlov. This was a really good draft. And the Senators whiffed. True, but you got to realize is that he was because the clear-cut number one. Pietro's draft. But, like, yeah, he was number one. If we look at Rick DiPietro's 2000 entry draft, like, yeah, you've got Heatley, Gabarik, and then it really kind of falls off after that. So I wouldn't say it's, like, Rick is a miss, but this draft isn't, it isn't as consequential getting a bust in the 2000 draft as it is getting, missing out on, like, Pronger, Niedermeyer, and a bunch of other really skilled players, Right. True, but and that's kind of when we are looking at a draft bust. The bust is always relative to his class. I think for the two thousand draft, though, is that you got to keep in mind, much like the ninety three draft, was that DiPietro, like Deg, was the clear cut number one. In hindsight, yes, it would be easy to say that yes, you could have taken Gabrick or you could have taken Danny Heatley first, and nobody would have blamed you because the yeah. Islanders had Roberto Luongo in the system. Well, here's the thing about Yakupov that really separates it is there's people saying you're dumb taking Yakupov first overall. So, like, that's the real hint that something went went off the rails there. And I, like, I'm going to say, like, no, he's not the worst, obviously, but Yashin's definitely near the bottom. Because, again, you're grading against the class. You mean Dag? Yes, yeah, right. Dag is near the bottom because you're grading against the class. Okay. And you have to look at this in terms of a distribution, not just a few isolated picks. Few, yeah, fair. I still don't think that Dag is one of. I would say he's not definitely in like the top two for sure. You can make an argument he's a top three of the worst, but that's just me. So I guess when talking about Alexander Dag, I think we can only we could probably bring up if we have any thoughts on him as a player. And obviously, I don't really have any lasting memories of Alexander Degg as a player because again I wasn't following the Senators at that time I was a little too young to really be watching them the only memory I have and it's funny because there's a very infamous clip I can't remember, I think it was like Scott Oak or somebody from CBC at the time after Alexander Degg got rocked by Ulf Samuelson and he did a fucking flip and that's why we and that's why we <laughs> used the clip at the very beginning of this episode is because that's my lasting memory of Alexander Degg was Scott Oak saying that, you know, you really got hit by all Samuelson. We saw it in the telecast. Are, are you a bit stronger than people give you credit for? And Dax is like, well, you know, Don Cherry is going to be loving it. He might add me in his video and maybe put me on the front cover or something. <laughs> no, that's the thing is, it is what it is. I didn't really watch Dag again. Uh, by the time I started really watching hockey, uh, he was in minnesota so yeah no yeah can't say much about him other than uh it's always funny to think that dag did cause a lockout yeah which is something that patrick stefan rick di pietro and dale yakupov don't have to their names okay okay well we could bring this up because you brought it up already and i think alexander dag and you know what a lot of people maybe do not realize this is that when you think about rookie contracts and yeah you have the rookie contracts you have what how much you could give to a rookie that was because of dag but also the nhl implemented 
the draft lottery. Because it was... People thought the Ottawa Senators purposely tanked to get deck. Well, I mean, they straight out said they were. Yep. Not the first time a team has done that, Pittsburgh. But, you know, when you think about just, like, all these years, like, the ramifications of DAG going first overall is still lasting right now. When you have the rookie contracts and the fact that the NHL implemented a draft lottery. Yeah, so he certainly fucked a lot of shit up. Although, I guess Rick DiPietro ended the Megacon. Actually, that's not even true. Roberto Luongo ended the mega contract. Mm. I think the real Kovachuk. lesson here is it was don't Kovachuk. sign these long fucking contracts. It was Ilya Kovalchuk, remember? Because Kovalchuk, he signed that 15-year yeah. deal with New Jersey, and then, like, what, three years later, he just straight retired? Didn't Luongo sign his deal after Kovalchuk's? Before. And then, then ended up getting traded, everyone's like, Vancouver's gonna get cap recaptured here. No, and then it was, there's, um, like, the suitor contracts. It was before. Oh, it was before? Yeah, okay. I think he signed it in, like, 2009 or something. Excuse me, 2008. And I think Kovalchuk signed his in, like, 2012 or 2013. Uh, when did the... When did the Kovalchuk trade go down? To Jersey? To Jersey, yeah. Uh, 20, 2010, I think. Yeah. So then it was after that. Like a year after that, he signed the the stupid contract and then retired. Pretty much, yeah. Because it was like he signed oh, his contract legend. right around the time that Suter and Parise signed theirs. Yeah, Suter and Parise signed theirs in twenty eleven. Ovechkin's really long contract was, I think, the year before. And that thing has been paying dividends since they signed it. Big time. So Tim. We gotta talk about next week's cover athlete because next week's episode will be season four, episode fifteen, in chronological order, episode ninety-two. Now, of course, since we didn't have an Ottawa Center that wore the number ninety-two, we felt it was only right and only appropriate to make the nineteen ninety-two, ninety-three Ottawa Senators our cover athlete for next week. You know, it's really funny to think about us making Deborah Caff cover athlete after we spent like a few minutes just dumping on them. And then uh, our only comment about them is going to be, you know what, being alive was kind of okay. Oh, come on now, Tim. You know that and we could probably talk 15 minutes about the Polish prince himself, Peter Sidorkowicz. Honestly, fair. I still can't believe we actually played Storker Sidork once. Should we bring that game back next week? How? We'll figure it out. Okay. Yeah. So, Tim, now that we got that out of the way, I've got to ask the all-important question that our listeners always love knowing every single week. How has your week been going? Honestly, I haven't done too much, mostly just yard work. Yeah? Have you gotten a lawnmower yet? Uh, no. So, basically, we're waiting to fertilize, and then... After that, probably wait a month and then mow. I'm not going to lie. You're going to be eminently disappointed when you actually see the lawnmower we're going to end up picking up. Is it going to be like that one from The Simpsons that Homer had, where it's just like the handle with like the big circle yeah. spout? Oh, man. Yeah, pretty much. That's all I need. What's the point of buying something that's going to need gas and maintenance? 
when I can just buy something that needs like minor sharpening every now and then. Yeah. Are you gonna buy a weed whacker for the the edges though? I might. I think that's a I think that's a given. I think you have to have to have that weed whacker for that bitch. Yeah. So, so how you been? You know, not great. Not gonna lie. And I, you know, I, you know, here's the thing. I've been, I've been pretty honest about, you know, my dealings with depression or whatever here. And yeah, this past week was just, just a tough mm. one, tough one for me. Cause honestly, you know, and like I said, I was, I've always been very open about it or fairly open. I should say not always open, but yeah, this week was just not a great week for me. And I think, you know, I was just dealing with it the last three to four days, probably happened midweek, like around not Tuesday, Wednesday for sure. And I can, I know when it's coming because my body just oddly craves sugar like crazy. So sorry, I'm just gonna close that mm. window. So yeah, like the second my body starts craving sugar, I know that I'm like, oh, this is not good. I know what's happening now. And yeah, Wednesday was just a tough. Like Wednesday and Thursday was just such a tough day because I think even people I worked with noticed because I'm usually you know usually upbeat. I'm usually not super chatty, but you know, I'm usually outgoing and sociable with people I work with and people couldn't really get even two words out of me. Mm. It, it was kind of obvious. It was just like, I had a couple of my coworkers ask me like, are, are you all right, man? Like you don't seem yourself. You seem really off. And I just, you know, I just told them what was going on. I said, yeah, you know, I'm, mm. yeah, I'm feeling really off right now. And so the one thing about, my dealings with depression obviously comes from the fact that it just sucks all the energy out of me. And so even mm. yesterday, like I could just kind of tell that I'm just, I was still not hundred percent. I'm trying to get, if I can use a hockey term, trying to get my legs back into it. <laughs> it just felt like I was walking mm. in quicksand. It was just like, nothing was going, nothing. I couldn't get anything going. And just for me, it was just so exhausting. And by last night, I was just like, I just, I got home, I think last night was probably the first time I sat down and watched a hockey game for the first time in legit two weeks. Because, you know, last week we didn't watch it. It was a good it. one, eh? It was a good game. Yeah. And, we'll, and we'll talk about that later on in this episode this evening. But I think for me, you know, and I've been very open about the fact that with the, when dealing with depression, it's hard for me to sit down and concentrate on anything. Even trying to watch wrestling, I got halfway through Dynamite this past week, and I just turned it off. I, I couldn't sit still anymore and watch it. Mm. It's just, you know, my brain's always rushing. I can't really stay still for me, and it's just, you know, just, yeah, it's just one of those weeks. I'm getting there. I'm getting back to 100%. And even, so if I, if I do seem a bit rambly in this episode, like you heard me early on, that's probably why is that I'm still trying to get back to 100% like I had this past week, but, you know, I'm trying. That's yep. all I can really do. Yeah, yeah fair enough, and uh, I think it'll turn out pretty good. I think so. So, I guess I should segue out of me being such a sad sack over here, and we're going to talk about last week's episode, <laughs> because last week's episode was our 2021 trade deadline episode. So, Overall, Tim, how do you think about our trade deadline episode for 2021? Man, I was scatterbrained. I know. And I think for me, that was a bit of a tough episode just because, again, like I said last week, I didn't really, 
I hadn't really followed the American team, so I really didn't know what was happening. And so, like, the Taylor Hall trade was kind of obvious. I can kind of be like, okay, Buffalo got nothing for him. That's a given. But yeah, and Taylor Hall's had two goals in two games. So that's got a sting. I know. And that's such a Buffalo thing, eh? Is that you will you can have a superstar star player that plays in that city, does not produce for them, but the second they walk out the door, they start producing for that team. Al Ocposo has to escape, man. Yep. Yeah, as we saw it with Ryan O'Reilly. Remember, he went to St. Louis, and then he won a Stanley Cup and became captain. goddamn Stanley Cup. Yeah, fuck. Overall, I'm glad I... that our star is produced. Yeah, isn't that funny, eh? Because we're the total opposite. It's like, we'll have our star players that produce, but the second they walk out the door, it just seems like they lost their game. That seemed to really be just Duchesne and Carlson, mostly. Well, and I guess Turris, too. I mean, you can add... Maybe you... it was just Mark Stone was immune. Yeah, Stone... Yeah, Stoney was... Yeah, he was immune. But even Dezangle didn't really do much outside of... Outside of Ottawa. Hoffman was that's fair, that's Hoffman's fair. an exception, you know, because he did very well in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin Leonard's and kind of the exception. He seems to be doing okay in St. Louis. I know, and there was a lot of talks that he was going to be traded too out of St. Louis. Well, St. Louis is uh, they're just treading water right now, although they're like one point behind Arizona. But then again, that West Division is almost a mirror image of the North Division. With just, like, your top teams are your top teams, and then your last team is a joke. Your last playoff team is a bit of a joke. Because right now, the last playoff spot in Honda West is being occupied by freaking Arizona. With a five an NHL 500 record and negative 20 goal differential. Jesus Christ. I know. It's hard to believe, eh, that there was a time when you can even have a losing or 500 record and still make the playoffs. Thank thank God we got away from that, Tim, because, ugh, there was nothing good ever came out of that. No. Didn't we just call that the Southeast Division? Pretty much. Pretty much. So, Tim, with all that being said... It's time to segue into this little segment I like to call Top of the Hour. So Tim, thankfully we don't have to talk about any deaths here this week, but we do got a couple of shoutouts to give out to. And, you know, for us hockey fans, it's really been very exciting and very awesome to see long-standing records that people thought were unbreakable being broken. Obviously, there are a lot of Gretzky's records. It looks like Ovechkin might bring the gold record. Martin Brodeur broke the most shutups and most wins record. And now, it looks like Gordie Howe's record for all-time games played is going to be broken this coming week because San Jose Sharks forward Patrick Marlowe has tied Gordie Howe for first on the all-time games played list with 1,000. 767. Marlowe, drafted second overall by the San Jose Sharks in 1997, has recorded four goals, four assists for eight points in 44 games for San Jose this season. It's funny because there's a lot of NHL players who played older than him. Like, I believe Stevie Y got closer to 50. Chris Chelios got to 48. But Marlowe, 
he has never played less than 60 games, sorry, less than 70 games in a full season. Yeah, it really goes to show just how durable Patrick Marlowe really has been. The fact is that if you look through his career, like he really hasn't suffered a serious, serious injury to him. But also the fact is, is that he's not once has he played in the American Hockey League. Because once he joined the NHL in 1997, he stayed there. And he's yeah, still going. because like his shortest season was his uh, inaugural season with 74 games in 97-98. That's insanity. Like, yeah, after that, he never played less than 75 games. The next shortest was in 08-09 where he missed six. I know. And, and I guess f- his 40-year-old 40, his 40 season in 2019-2020, but nobody played more than 66 games that season. That is like, true. Do you know the last time Patrick Marlowe missed a game? No. 2009. To injury? Yeah. Wow. That's the last time he didn't play a full season. That is... Wow, that's insane. That is actually really insane to know that, Tim. Yeah, because, like, 2009, 82 games. 2010, 82 games. 2011, 82 games. 2012, 2013, 48 games. 2013, 2014, 82. 2014, 2015, 82. 15, 16, currently has 44 this season which is the same amount that san jose has played well i mean i guess for his third tenure with the sharks i mean that's that's all right you know he's a bottom six guy the sharks know what he is so given that man you know i can't wait for next week's episode when we actually talk about patrick marlowe becoming the all-time games played leader yeah it's insane to think that the guy just hasn't missed a game in a decade yeah, it's a shame that he's going to go out without a Stanley Cup, though, because he the guy really did have an amazing career. Yeah, well, the one thing I'm always amazed is that he didn't win one on in Toronto. Because, like, those were good teams. They just couldn't do shit. I don't feel so bad. Thornton didn't win one with Toronto either, so. To be fair, this is Thornton's third whack <laughs> at it with Toronto. No, it isn't. Yeah, it is. It's his first. Thornton was at San Jose last season. Yeah, he's never... Yeah, this is only his first tenure with the Leafs. Yeah, so it's Thornton's first whack at it. Oh, I thought... So it's not fair to say. Sorry, I thought you said it's his third whack at it. Sorry, I misheard you on that. First. Okay. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Fair enough. We actually gave... uh, Sorry, we got to give another quick shout-out to Vegas Gold Knights goaltender Marc-Andre Fleury, who tied Ed Belfer for fourth on the all-time win list with 484, and also tied Patrick Waugh for 15th on the all-time shutout list with 66 during their game versus Arizona on April 11th. Fleury, drafted first overall by Pittsburgh in 2003, has recorded a 28-18-10 record with a 9-2-5 save percentage for Vegas at the time of this story. So I do got to make a correction here. I just figured out today, Marc-Andre Fleury, the sole owner for fourth overall, he got that win. Nice. I'm surprised... Patrick was not higher on that shutout list just because he is a well-known, fantastic goalie. I thought he would have been higher. You would think that, right? But you got to realize is that when he played in Montreal, when he played in Colorado, they weren't... They were so offensively talented that defense really almost took a backseat at times. Especially in Colorado. Yeah. 
Calgary Flames forward Milan Lucic played his 1,000th NHL game versus the Toronto Maple Leafs. Lucic, drafted 50th overall by the Boston Bruins in 2006, has recorded 7 goals, 10 assists for 17 points, and 42 games for Calgary at the time of this story. Yeah, it's new. Lucic is another one of those guys who's just been fairly dependable. Not great, but he'll suit up. He'll go to the dirty areas, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, another guy who hasn't missed a lot of hockey. Yeah, that's true. And I think for myself, because I did, I really liked Milan Lucic when he played in Boston. Like, he was definitely one of my favorite guys to watch. And it's really a shame where Milan Lucic, you could really tell that he does not have the foot speed anymore. Now, not to say he didn't have the foot speed back then, because he was just this big, lumbering guy who just ran at you in full speed. So he was kind of like a Cam Neely type of player in Boston. But as the game got faster, you can definitely tell where Milan Lucic's weaknesses were really highlighted. Oh, yeah. And it's actually funny. There's a lot of players we're talking about like just getting to 1,000 games in their late 30s while Milan Lucic is here at 31, 32, sorry. Yeah. And it's also weird to see a guy who was drafted when we were in high school getting to 1,000 games at almost ending, probably near the end of his career here. That is true, man. But you know what? He's not the only person from the 2006 draft who hit 1,000 games this week. Washington Capitals forward Nicholas Backstrom became the 356th player in Angel history and second in Capitals franchise history to play 1,000 games. Backstrom, drafted fourth overall by Washington in 2006, has recorded 14 goals, 31 assists for 45 points in 44 games for Washington at the time of this story. Nicholas Backstrom's definitely one of those guys that I always think is younger than he is. Yeah, because he's definitely not a guy that gets a ton of recognition in Washington, given, you know, that Ovechkin's there. But, honestly, there's not really a ton we can really say about Nick Backstrom. I think the only thing I can really say is that I really like his uh, hockey curve. He has a Saka curve. Well, I mean, he won an art Sorry, he made all-rookie team. That's kind of cool. And came second in Calder voting that year. Yes, yeah, nothing to sneeze at, man. Another thing is that we're talking about a guy who routinely serves up 50-plus assists in a season. And, uh, yeah, 101 points in 2009 is nothing to sniff at at all. And that was probably, what, the quietest 100 points anyone's ever scored? Yeah, no kidding. Another thing that isn't really anything to sneeze about is the fact that the Detroit Red Wings hit... 20,000 goals in team history during their game versus the Carolina Hurricanes. Said players who scored for the franchise include Gordie Howe, Steve Eisenman, and Sergei Fedorov. Burn is not a name I would have thought would hold a title like that. I was honestly expecting it to go to like Dylan Larkin or something. I honestly have no idea who that player is. Yeah, I think he's been like one of their kind of random background players. Oh, he came over from Tampa Bay in 2019-2020. Really? Yeah. That's kind of cool. You know what's funny when hey. I was... Sorry, man. When I was reading this story about the Red Wings and Sergei Fedorov's name came up, I still remember, and I don't know if I ever told this story. Okay, when I was a kid, my dad used to get his skates sharpened at this place in Victoria. It was on the corner of Shelburne and McKenzie, right across from where the Esso station is. I think it's like a sushi house now or whatever. Okay, that used to be a sports store called Ray Sports. So, 
my dad, I was probably three or three or four years old. My dad went in there to get a skate sharpened. And so he went up to the counter and put his skates down. He's talking to the guy. So I'm just like fucking around in the store with the sticks and whatever. And I see a Federoff stick. So I get it. They get a tennis or a hockey ball, tennis ball. And I start farting around with it in the store, right? You know, three to four year old kid. So I'm doing that. And I guess the ball went underneath where all the sticks went. So I tried to get the ball out. Well, next thing I know, the one of the guys that worked there ripped the stick out of my hands. And I, all I did was look up at him. And I'm like, um, I looked at my dad and my dad happened to see And my dad happened to see that. And he's just like, you know what? No, he grabbed the skates. He grabbed me and we left and we never went back. So I guess we could move on to a couple of signings because last week when we were talking about the trades, Tim, there were some signings that we didn't cover. <coughs> Excuse me. And I figured that we should cover it right now. Los Angeles Kings have re-signed forward Alex Alafile to a four-year, $16 million contract with an AAV of $4 million. Alafalo has recorded 11 goals, 15 assists for 26 points, and 40 games for Los Angeles at the time of the story. Not a fan. Not a fan of this. No. Four million for Ayafalo? No. Like, sure, he's playing first line minutes because you're playing a first line minutes. This is a guy who doesn't exactly push play, and uh, he can't shoot that well. He looks like maybe a power play specialist at that. I, I don't think you pay him for, for four million a season. That's uh, that's not a good use of your money. No, no, it's really not. Another guy that we need to talk about, Tim, Philadelphia Flyers have re-signed forward Scott Lawton to a five-year, $15 million contract with an AAV of $3 million. Lawton has recorded seven goals, 10 assists for 17 points in 38 games for Philadelphia at the time of the story. So I'm not... Uh, here's the thing. I'm fine with the cap hit of $3 million. Not bad. Does he really deserve five years? Honestly... It'll take him to 31, which, not terrible. Scott Lawton, what's weird is this guy, he's really good at just finishing shots. Like, he's in a pretty high percentile of just being able to finish. Mm -hmm. If he can get that puck to the net. I, like, I'd pay $3 million for a second-line finisher. Yeah, and that's the thing. That isn't actively harming me on the back end, right? Yeah, exactly, and I'm fine with the money. The money part is fine. Like, okay, three million, that's fine. I'm just not crazy about five mil. Or not sorry, not five but five years, because honestly, for a second line guy, no. I, I wouldn't give him five years. I would have said three years maybe. And I think the nice thing about us, Tim, with the podcast, is that given the network that we're on, it's full of Flyers fans. So I definitely get their perspective when I read their Twitter and I see what their reaction is. And the reaction I got was that they, they also like the money. They don't like the term. That's fair enough. Like I could see people like getting into years three or four or that be like, why is this guy taking a contract slot from draft pick? Sorry. So it's like, I definitely get why people aren't terribly happy with signing a two, three tweener to a long contract. Yeah. Now a contract that I do like both the term and the money part is the next contract we're going to talk about. Washington Capitals have re-signed forward Connor Sherry to a two-year, $3 million contract with an AAV 1.5. Sherry has recorded 11 goals, 8 assists for 19 points, and 40 games for Washington at the time of the story. 
I'm fine with I'm it. I'm sure he's such a weird player. Because, like, remember when Buffalo signed up thinking that he was going to be the guy who was just riding shotgun to Crosby the whole time? Yep. It's not like he was particularly bad in Buffalo. Although, he just somehow forgot how to shoot. We can say that about a lot of players in Buffalo. Eh? We can even say that about head coaches that go to Buffalo, right? Like a Dan Belsma. Yeah. Sure, he's not. A, sorry, sure, he's not a bad pickup for Washington, though. He's definitely a very good bottom six option at a really decent cap rate. So, pretty smart signing, right? Especially when you hit the playoffs, he has the experience of playing with Crosby. So, I'm not. I'm fine with this. I like it for Washington. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a good signing. And the nice thing is, is if someone gets injured in your top six, Connor Sheary can move up. So it's a versatile signing. Absolutely, man. The Winnipeg Jets have re-signed forward Adam Laurie to a five-year, $16.25 million contract with an AAB 3.25. Laurie has recorded eight goals, 12 assists for 20 points in 44 games for Winnipeg at the time of the story. Okay, I want to get your take on this because, honestly, I'm not super crazy about this because... Adam Laurie, I don't think, is worth 3.25 to me. Lowry's weird. Because, like, his shot effects are all over the goddamn map in Winnipeg. So it's like, I think that Lowry is probably just like a... In, like, some years, he's been, like, far and away a really good player in, oh, 15 minutes vice. But... Other years, in this year, he's just, like, sorry, last year, he's been rather pedestrian. Mm-hmm. So, like, if last year was just kind of a fluke, and it might not be, then $3 million for three million for Lowry to play second, second, third tweener lines is good money. If last year wasn't a fluke, and that's the Adam Lowry we're going to see going forward, then I'm not a fan of this signing, because it shows a player who's already on his decline at 27. Yeah, and it's definitely a contract that, say, in year three, if they want to try and move him, and he's hit the skid so hard that he really has no value, that's going to be a not a super hard contract to move, but it's definitely going to be a tougher contract to move. Yeah, like, this is a contract that I'm surprised they didn't just put three years to 30 and be like, yeah, we'll see what happens when you're a 30-year-old. But uh, I can also see Adam Lowry not wanting to sign such a contract. National Predators forward. Michael, as soon as sorry. he hits 30, then he's on the back foot, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't really have a ton to really talk about Adam Laurie here because I'm not... Other, I mean, I think I've already made my thoughts clear. Like, I'm not crazy about the term. I'm not crazy about the money. So, it's not a, really a ton I can really add here, Tim. No, fair enough, fair enough. So, Tim, we have a suspension this past week. National Predators forward Michael McCarran has been suspended two games for an illegal check on Tampa Bay Lightning forward Yanni Gouda. McCarran is not a repeat offender. I honestly didn't see the hit, so I don't have much to really comment on this. I don't know if you watched Saw it at all. If it you was wanna... a rough check. Was it? Yeah, so it's like, it's a good suspension. You don't hit a guy like that. So, Tim, we're going to close out top of the hour by talking about some Ottawa Senators news. 
because we got a couple of guys who signed a th three-year entry-level contract. And we're going to start off with the Ottawa Senators have signed goalie Matt Sogard to a three-year entry-level contract. Sogard, drafted 37th overall by the Ottawa Senators in 2019, has recorded a 21-13-2 record with a 908 save percentage for the WHL's Medicine Hat Tigers at the time of the story. Matt Sogard looks like he's going to be pretty good. The WHL, it's not as much of a puck fest as the Q, that's for sure. But it'll be interesting to see uh, how he looks in, I guess, the A or if Ottawa ends up getting a new ECHL affiliate, given that the Brampton Beast are no more. Yeah, I and mean, another option could be he could play, go over and play in the uh, Swedish Elite League, too, if needed. Mm. Yes. Ottawa's running out of space with goaltenders, so you have to think that if Marcus Hogberg doesn't shape up, he'll be shipped out. Yeah, and that's funny with Ottawa's goalie situation is really because Matt Murray has returned, and he's actually looked pretty good in his return. You have Kevin Mandelis, you have Sogard, you have um, Merkelainen over in Finland. You have Joey Decord, you have Goose. So yeah, Hogburn might be the odd man out if he doesn't shape up. So I absolutely agree with you on that. The only other Ottawa Senators signing to talk about is the Ottawa Senators have signed forward Cole Reinhardt to a three-year entry-level contract. Reinhardt, drafted 181st overall by the Ottawa Senators in 2020, has recorded three goals, four assists for seven points in 21 games with the American Hockey League's Belleville Senators. So I'm guessing he signed an AHL contract before he signed a NHL, like an NHL entry-level contract, or was he on a PTO? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm guessing he probably signed a AHL contract, I would imagine, if, if he didn't sign a PTO. But no, it's a... I'm fine with it. Don't really have much to say about it, to yeah. be honest with you. Well... The other thing is it's nice that one of the deep picks, so 100, 181st would be 6th, 7th round, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's good to see that a, yeah, 6th round, 181st, is, that's actually panning out, that it might actually turn into an, if not an, eight, an NHL player, then at least a serviceable NHL player, yeah. which is uh, more than you can say for most 6th round picks. That is true. I don't, I don't know if he'll make the NHL. I mean, it's too early to say, but he might be a really good AHL player with the Belleville Senators. Mm -hmm. But it looks like uh, it's a six-rounder round, six that turned into something. And uh, you get a lot. Pierre Dorian's actually pretty good at that, all things considered. Yeah, man. And we're definitely going to talk about some of his recent draft picks when we get to the games. Well, Tim, I guess that wraps up top of the hour for this week, which can mean only one thing. It's time to start talking about some games. Now, we got three games on the schedule we need to talk about. We've got the two games between the Jets and the Senators and the Sens and the Montreal Canadiens. But before we do that, let's hit the music. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. 
Okay, Tim, let's start talking about the Jets versus the Senators. This is a 4-2 Ottawa Senators victory. Jets goals are scored by Kyle Connor and Nikolai Ehlers. Sens goals are scored by Brady Chuck with two, Connor Brown, and Evgeny Dadunov. Shots were 26-24 for Winnipeg. Kyle Connor opens the scoring to make it 1-0 Jets on a, with a one-timer on the power play. Nikolai Ehlers scores to make it 2-0 through a screen. Brady Chuck gets Ottawa on the board to make it 2-1, tipping in Josh Norris's shot in front. Connor Brown ties the game at 2 with a beauty wrist shot that hits Hellebach and in. Dadunov scores to make it 3-2 sends after Hellebach freezes, bails to freeze the puck. And Dechuk scores his second of the night to make it 4-2 Senators, which would be the final. So I can just watch this game last week. Obviously, because the game was on a Monday and we were recording the trade deadline episode, that's why I didn't get a chance to watch the game. So, let's start talking about some players. Brady Dechuk. Two goals on five shots. The guy had a great game overall. I mean, there's yeah. really no other way to put it. Yeah, like, Brady Dechuk was all over the ice, and uh, it was a very Brady game. I really like this game for pretty much all of the Senators, really. Like, they came out... And this is a game that really had the capability of getting away from the Senators because the Jets just came out flying early. And then Ray Kachuk, they, he gets that power play goal early, which is really key here because the Senators' power play has been weak up until around this point. I've actually noticed like some tweaks to the power play lately, and it looks a lot better. Uh, they're not running absolutely everything through Shabbat anymore. They're able to get set up and uh, sustain nice looks at the net. And all of Ottawa's special team shots came from pretty nice locations on the ice. And Brady just whizzed that one home. Whatever adjustments they made to the power play worked. Yeah, and that's really the one note I had on Brady is that my note was that had a great game, scored classic Brady goals in this game. One thing that I really liked about the Ottawa Senators at Five on five, this game is that once they settled the game down, Connor Brown scores another goal, and I believe this is the last one of his streak. They settle it down and, and uh, just play the rest of the game out. Winnipeg kind of fades away. But credit to the Senators for playing a solid defensive game the rest of the way and getting two more markers in the third. I really liked Shabbat this game. I felt like he was a lot better than he had been in previous outings. Yeah, I didn't notice Shabbat a ton in this game because I didn't really watch the game. I was obviously condensed it, so I could really only comment what I see. But two other guys I do want to talk about. Anton Forsberg, 24 saves, a .923 save percentage. I thought he looked fantastic in this game. And that's something that we really haven't been able to say a lot about the goaltending for the Sens this season. Yeah. And at the other end of the ice... Connor Hellebuck didn't look great. No. No, he did not. Like, there was just a lot of miscues. Well, I mean, that... I'm The Dadunov goal, right? Where he fails to freeze the puck. Because you can clearly see him. The puck came out. It hit him. It looked like he tried to freeze it. He put the glove down and the puck slid out. And Dadunov was ready for the to snipe that one in. Mm-hmm. Actually, the other thing is... This was not the game for uh, Connor Hellebuck to not have it because he did not get much point support from Winnipeg. Because Ottawa just had 
the better shots throughout the game. Straight up. Yeah. And one of those Winnipeg shots... was mostly Good. kept to the outside, even on the power play. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess the... And one of those shots I do got to talk about was of getting down and off, like I said, one goal and three shots. The only real comment I have on him in this game is that games like this really makes Dadanoff going cold worse. Because we know that he can produce. Yeah, frustrating, but at the same time, it's like, I think it's just, it's hard because it's like, I think there's still a really good player under Evgeny Dadanoff. Mm-hmm. It's just been, it's just not been his season, right? No, it hasn't. Because, like, he's still getting to the net. He's still getting his chances. It's just not happening. It sucks. But what's she going to do, right? So, Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make on this game before we head off to the second game between the Jets and the Sens? No, let's do it. Second game between the Jets and the Senators. This is a 3-2 Jets victory. Jets goes scored by Mark Scheifele, Matthew Perrone, and Trevor Lewis. Sens goes scored by Nick Paul. Josh Norris. Shots for 35-29 for Winnipeg. Nick Paul opens the scoring to make it 1-0 Senators, roofing at top corner. Mark Shifley gets Winnipeg on the board to make it a 1-1 game on a cross-crease pass. Matthew Perron scores top shot to make it 2-1 Jets. Trevor Lewis scores to make it 3-1. And Josh Norris hammers one home in the final seconds to make it 3-2 Jets, which would be the final. So... As I said earlier in this episode, I was dealing with some depression stuff this past week. And this is one of the games that I didn't end up watching. I just couldn't sit down and focus enough to really watch a game. And it really sucks because this was the first game for Jacob Berner-Docker as an Ottawa center. So, do you have any comments you want to make on JBD's first NHL game, Tim? He looked very ready for NHL action. Granted, Berner-Docker was getting somewhat sheltered minutes. He didn't spend a lot of time seeing uh, Mark Shifley, for instance, but in the time that he was on the ice, he looked very calm, other than a few early wobbly plays. He looked really calm, moved the puck really well, and just generally knew where he needed to be. And uh, he wasn't victimized for a goal against on ice, and uh, I really liked his skating and his general hockey sense. So I thought... Jacob Berndocker had a really good first game. It's a shame that the Senators lost this one. Uh, do you want to talk about the controversy of the night? Which controversy? The third goal. Sens fans not happy with Thomas Shabbat or Mark or uh, Matt Murray. Specifically, Puck hops on Shabbat, and Shabbat isn't able to catch up. Murray. It looks like he's decided to go to challenge it then, regrets the decision, tries to come back, and Trevor Lewis puts it pretty easily past Murray for 3-1 Senators. Sorry, 3-1 Jets. Quite frankly, I didn't really read Twitter or ton of controversy that day, so I really don't have any comments to make on that, to be perfectly honest with you. But I guess we can talk about Matt Murray, because this was his first start back from injury. 34 saves, a .914 save percentage. Outside of the Trevor Lewis goal... Honestly, Matt Murray looked pretty good. Yeah. The only sad thing is is Murray couldn't steal that goal, but the Trevor Lewis goal is going to be a hard... It's a hard one to stop when, yeah, the power play flubs. Like, it was 
a weird flood play by Shabbat. And you have to make a split-second decision because Lewis gets pretty much front and center on Murray. Not many goal scorers are going to miss that one. Especially after Murray made the decision and then is like, oh shit, and had to bring it back. Although at the same time, it's like, I feel like people are definitely being way too hard on Shabbat on this one. Like, it's a flood play, but there's a lot of discussion about, like, Shabbat not trying and stuff like that. It's like, one, you don't live in his head. How do you know? And two, this is the sort of shit that drove Spets out of town. Let's not do this to another elite Ottawa Senators player. Yeah. Actually, let's talk about Thomas Shabbat. Two assists and two shots. And the one thing I really liked about him in the condensed game that I saw was that on the Paul and Norris goals, you can definitely tell that guy was the team's quarterback in this game. Yeah. And, like, other than that one script, like, he was moving the puck pretty damn well. And, yeah, he teed up two beautiful goals. It's a shame that the Norris goal came so late. Because, honestly, I thought Ottawa had a chance to claw their way back into it. Yeah, that's a garbage time goal right there. Yeah. Because I thought for, like, the last 10 minutes, Ottawa played a really good game. And, actually, I really like Victor Mete as well in this game. Yeah, I think this That is... guy, he's got really nice north-south north south skating. Was this his first game with the Sens, too? Or was it... I don't believe so. Or was it previous? Okay. I believe it's his second, but he looked good. Okay. Uh, yeah, the only other comment I could really make, and I know you might have seen this on Twitter, is Pan from the Sense Call-Ups, his comment on the reverse retro jersey was that he found it really hard to read the jersey, so I, queet, I didn't quote tweet it, but I added you in that thread. I'm like, you see? You see? I told you I'm not the only one. It's not that bad. So, Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make before we head off into the third and final game of the evening? There's not much to say about this one. I thought Ottawa played well enough, and it's a, a shame that a small mistake led to them losing the game, but I don't mind losing games like this this way because I thought Ottawa had a chance to win. It also didn't help. Like, Matt Murray played a pretty good game, 90.91, and Brassois played pretty darn well as well. So overall, like this was just a good game to watch. The third and final game of the evening, Sens versus Canadians. This is a 4 nothing Ottawa Senators victory. Sens goes scored by Drake Batherson with two, Artem Zub, and Nikita Zaitsev. Shots were 23-14 for Montreal. A somewhat game overall, Montreal-Ottawa dominated the Habs in the first period with their speed and puck control as they went up one nothing. However, as the game went on, Montreal's play improved enough to where they were leading in shots. However... It was Ottawa who was able to bury their chances to secure the W. So we're going to start off Honestly, with... Honestly, Montreal got nothing going until like the last five minutes of that game. Every time that Montreal tried to assemble a rush, it was just picked apart at the Ottawa neutral zone, or it was like a crappy shot through, through good coverage. Credit to Ottawa for their defensive game. And uh, one guy I want to talk about right off the top is Shane Pinto. Yes, let's talk about him. One assist in his first NHL game. I was really impressed with him in this game. Like those two con- to- those two converted turnovers he did in the game. Fantastic. Well, the, the fact the is he is picked is- it off and then he just flipped it out. Because he knew that, okay, just go. In nine minutes, he looked really good. 
was in the perfect spot at the perfect time. And those two converted turnovers are exactly it. And one thing I'm really happy is even though he didn't have a ton of time on the ice and DJ Smith said he wanted to play him more, but he just couldn't get the matchup. Mm -hmm. He put Shane Pinto out for Montreal pulling their goaltender with five minutes left in the game, which I'm not going to lie. I like that Ducharme did that because that takes balls. But DJ Smith put Pinto out there to take a pretty damn key face-off, six on five with an offensive zone face-off for Montreal. Pinto wins it clean to Zaitsev, and Zaitsev gets the 200-yard shot into the empty frame. Like, it's impressive in your first game that you're being trusted to do that. Yeah, and that really goes to show the amount of trust that DJ Smith must have in Shane Pinto if he's willing to put him out in that scenario. And there's actually a few guys I do want to talk about in this game. Drake Batherson, two goals, one assist on two shots. This is a guy, he always has Montreal's number every time we play him. Oh, yeah. And Batherson's second goal was an absolute beauty. Because you have Brady Kachuk gets deep on that power play, gets to the goal line, sees that Batherson's worked himself open, and it's just lightly sent to Batherson and popped in the net. You'll love it. So a couple more guys we got to talk about, Tim. Matt Murray, a 23-save shutout. Now, although he didn't face many high-danger shots in this game, the one note I do want to make, I believe it was in the first period when Colin White with the brutal t- turnover right in front of that to Jonathan Drewman, and Matt Murray stopped him. That's the Matt Murray that we were hoping for. And earlier in the season, that would have gone. I think once you see a save like that, you know the goalie's going to have a good night. For sure. And the fact is that this was the Ottawa Senators' first shutout of the season. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the first shutout we had in two years or something. It's the first shutout at DJ Smith's NHL coaching career. That says a lot. To be perfectly honest, and he's been here for two seasons, and this is the very first shutout that he's ever had. But in fairness, you look how defensively terrible we were at the beginning of the season. How the goaltending was not very good. Yeah, it was. It was bad. Another guy I want to talk about, and we talked about earlier in this episode, Evgeny Dadunov. Four shots in this game. I thought he actually played pretty good in this one. And yes, he had another game where he either crashed into the boards or, in this case, crashed into the net. Dadunov was playing hard in a show. Like, uh, he was he was in kind of a very nice place for your expected goals numbers. And honestly, even though he wasn't getting rewarded, he set up some really nice looks for Stutzla as well. So it was just a really good game. Again, I'm really sad Victor Mete didn't get a goal in this game because he was flying. Yeah, him and Branstrom as well. Yeah, I really liked Branstrom in this game. He was on the ice for two goals, and I played 18 minutes, which is near the most in in his tenure under uh, DJ Smith. But the other thing that caught me by surprise is that Eric Branstrom got penalty kill minutes, and he looked good. Like, 
this is a completely different Eric Branstrom than the one we saw earlier in the season. Quite frankly, because this is a got... much different team too, right? Because you went from a yeah. team that was so slow to a team that has Branstrom and Mate and Pinto and all these guys who can just fly, and Alex Formanton too, who we have not mentioned yet in this episode. And he looked really good in this couple of games that he played. Well, the other thing that I really liked about Branstrom in this game is the stick is way more active. Like, he's taking away lane, like, actively taking away lanes. It's being, generally moving himself laterally to the right spot, using the stick to just stop passes in their tracks. Him and Pinto were absolutely dynamite in the penalty kill minutes they got. It was fantastic. And uh, if that's if that's the Eric Branstrom we're going to be getting going forward, the Sens decor of Shabbat, Branstrom, Zub, and Bernard Docker, and then having Sanderson come in too, yep. it's going to be solid. Like, I think the D is pretty well built. I think so. Uh, yeah, and it's like, I thought, the, and it was nice because Shabbat only played 25 minutes this game. It's a shame that Mete only got 10, and, well, Josh Brown taking 13 is about right, but uh, that Zub and Branstrom can take about 20 minutes is going to reduce the workload of Shabbat. Hopefully we'll see fewer 30-minute games for Shabbat, and maybe Bernard Docker and Mete get gain more trust with DJ Smith. They'll be able to take up to 15, 16 minutes, and all of a sudden Shabbat's playing 23-24. And then I think we'll see some real shit. I'm legitimately excited for the Ottawa Senators of next year. Oh, man. It's going to be so good, man. Like, I, I can't honestly wait. So, the last comment I want to make, and it has nothing really to do with the team on the ice. It has something to do about Sen's GM, Pierre Dorian. I don't know if you noticed this. The chips. The chips, yes. The Lay's original chips. Now, I actually want to comment about this because I'm... I'm not sure if I'm really surprised by the choice because, quite frankly, I don't know what his preference of potato chip would have been. I'm not going to lie, though. Salted potatoes are just straight tasty, my dude. Especially Lay's. Yeah, it's like... I don't think picking the original chips is actually going wrong. It's like... I love all the memes of, like... Dorian watching the kids he drafted happily eating regular chips. Dorian watching the veterans he traded for. Whoa, with the juice. <laughs> it was so... Oh, that was so good. It was so Honestly, good. Honestly, this is a season that's really personified Pierre Dorian just as a person. Because we've gotten so many really human moments out of Dorian, like whipping the juice, eating the chips, hockey dad, where he's just standing behind the goal watching just there's been so many really funny Pierre Dorian moments this season and I'm glad that just really brings out what sort of character he is because I've made it no secret that I I really do like the work that Pierre Dorian's done it's a bit it's sad that some of the trades don't work out but I think on net I've been pretty happy with Dorian's trading I love his drafting and I'm, I'm glad that we're going to have a few more, probably have more years of Pierre Dorian, and maybe next year uh, we get, he gets some more playoff hockey. 
Yeah. You know what uh, my favorite meme of Pierre Dorian throwing the juice? I don't know if you saw Gatno Greg's tweet after that came out where <laughs> Joe Biden's walking up the stairs and he threw the cup at him. Honestly, I'm here for Biden edits because I don't think anyone has tripped that bad on TV. No. Not even Gerald Ford. No, but you know what? Is there anything worse than falling and up, Gerald Ford's uh, falling got up the stairs? In a Simpsons episode. That's true. I think George H. Bush, I think he got the worst out of the Simpsons, though. With the wig? The wig. Uh, let's see. What did he do? There was the wig, the fireworks, when when Bart threw the box of locusts at him, the fight in the sewer. <laughs> God, what the... I think his comment of, I'm going to ruin you like a Japanese banquet, is funny. Especially when you That's know what bad. he's referring to. It's so, it's so bad, but it's funny if you know what he's talking about. I, I do got to make one thing about Lay's potato chips. Is that on a recent episode of Wally and Mathot, is the guys had TSN's Bob McKenzie on the program. So they asked him what his favorite snack is. And he says, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a big Lay's barbecue chip guy. And I'm just like, oh boy, Bob. The Bob father. The Bob father and I are pals now. Because of his love of Lay's barbecue chips, Tim. I still can't get over the time you described Trevor Shackles as a Lay's barbecue chip. I know. I'm going to say right now, if we get him back on the program, I am so telling him that. Just to make it awkward <laughs> again. I think the only That's comment... That's the law. It's so <laughs> true. It's so true. And I think the... he's on this show. The only other comment I can make about Wally Mathot was I, I heard the episode they did with Noodles recently. And so he has a story about when he uh, was hanging out with Chad Kruger from Nickelback and Kid Rock. And Noodles was one of the first guys that Kid Rock debuted all summer long to. <laughs> it's true. Like, they were over at Kid Rock's house in Malibu and Noodles is there drinking. And he goes, Kid Rock, man, that's going to be a hit. <laughs> I always thought Kid Rock was a... Detroit guy though he is a Detroit guy but he um he owns houses everywhere he actually owns a house in Glenora too he just bought one recently okay yeah but yeah, no, I always thought like he was hung out more with the Red Wings true but I mean keep in mind is that he lives in Malibu and so Kid Rock just hangs out with yeah. anybody right so that's true that's true so Tim I don't have any more comments to make on this game if you just want to head off into the close for another evening yeah sounds good well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it, because believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. We're on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network, where you can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We're also on Twitter. At Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M901HoneyBadger. I'm at GreatWhiteGipster, G-R-8-W-Y-T-E-Gipster. If you want to shoot us an email to talk about the games, top of the hour, or... You also want to give some love about Blaze Barbecue Chips? Shoot us an email. Thirdlifeplugsuncast at gmail.com. So, Tim, I just realized one thing right now is that a promise we made on last week's episode. I was about to say that. So, I think we should, de- we should dedicate a few minutes here for our bot, Adam, to talk about Pokemon. In what sense? It doesn't matter does not matter what we say. Now, I think for me, 
we should probably talk a little bit about Pokemon. And I think for me, one of the things that we talked about last time is that there's going to be a new Pokemon Snap for the yep. for the Switch. And one of my coworkers is actually yes. selling her Switch because she wanted to get her son like the newer Switch. And I actually thought about buying it just to play the new Pokemon Snap. Honestly, go for it. The Switch's back, it has a very good back library. It does. It does. Because I think you'd probably get a kick out of Mario Galaxy and uh, Breath of the Wild. Yeah, Galaxy I played on the Wii back in the... Sorry, not Galaxy. No, uh, Odyssey. That was the game I wanted to play. Odyssey, yeah. I wanted to play on the Switch. I just never got one. Between that and the Mario All-Stars, you know, 64, Galaxy, and... Yeah. uh, Sunshine. So, I think for Pokemon, really, I mean... We could talk about some memories we have playing the games. Now, I know, obviously, you talked about playing the handhelds, but what about the console games, though, Tim? Because there has been quite a few of the console games out there over the years. Well, I know I was talking about it last week where the ethos of Pokemon was that you have the the handheld game because it's something that's portable and shareable, like you're going on an adventure. Yeah. While the console games were always to support the handheld games, or they were just pure spinoffs. So, I played a good chunk of them, like, Pokemon Stadium 1 and 2 were, like, they're very good N64, like, Pokemon battle games, mm-hmm. and, uh, of course, I break out Delibird minigame on Pokemon Stadium 2 every Christmas. It's a Gen Z family tradition to just screw each other over trying to uh, get the most points. Uh, Chelsea has learned very well that sometimes the best play is just be a completely non-cooperative dickhead and just pin someone into the corner who might be about to win if you don't actually have the gifts to gifts to beat them if they make that delivery. Honestly, that just sounds like our family tradition every year playing Mario Party on Christmas Day. It's just like, because you know the second grab bag gets broken out, it's like, oh no. Oh no. No, no, no. Don't, oh, don't do it. Don't come after me. Oh, it's happening. Um... But there actually were some good Pokemon RPGs for the consoles. And, well, by consoles, I mean the GameCube. Because that's the only console that got, like, a full Pokemon game. And even then, Coliseum was... The RPG mode was still subordinate to playing Pokemon on a big... Battling Pokemon on the big screen. Mm -hmm. Because the role-playing game in Coliseum is rather short. Uh, XT's is actually pretty long and pretty fun but there hasn't really been much pokemon on the consoles after pokemon battle revolution on the wii u that was the last stadium style one because well the company that made it didn't do a good job and two i think by that point there wasn't really a a need for that sort of game anymore because the ds looked good enough the ds could do online play on its own and Eventually, the 3DS looked really good, and they just started doing 3D battles and big screen battles by hooking up the 3DSs to it. Well, having 3DSs wirelessly communicate with a master node that Nintendo had, and they just throw that up on the screen. So there wasn't really much of a reason for a game like Pokemon Stadium or Pokemon Battle Revolution anymore. I think my I think for me the only real memories I have of the Pokemon console games 
definitely goes back to Pokemon Stadium on the N64. And while, like, I've made no... Like, obviously, I've told you in the past, like, I wasn't a diehard Pokemon fan. But Stadium, I think I did have one of my friends that did... I think he did own it back in the day, if I'm not mistaken. I, no, you know what it was? It was Pokemon Stadium 2. Because we talked about that. Remember the giant-ass box that came in? Yes! Yes, he had one of those. And I remember that because it was like that... The transfer pack came with it, so you can put your your cartridge in there. And yeah, I remember playing Stadium back in the day with him, and it was it was fun for what it was. And I think for me, I did play the little bit of the handhelds, but it still comes back to Pokemon Snap, and I don't know why. It just seems like such a simple game, but it's a game that's so calming to play, and the music's really nice, and it's just like, oh, this is a really, really nice time I'm having. Yeah, there's actually been a lot of really good Pokemon spinoffs. Um, the Mystery Dungeon series is pretty good. Uh, it's a random dungeon crawler. So it's a different type of RPG to the mainline games. Where you're exploring randomized dungeons instead of uh, going through doing a standard adventure. Pokemon Rumble is fun for a cute pick-up-and-play pick game, but I think I think that game shut down now. Yeah, so there's been a lot of Pokemon spinoffs. There was a Pokemon Art Academy game for the DS that just let you draw Pokemon. That's probably pretty fun for kids. Honestly, maybe Adam should find that for Emmett. Yeah. Between that and then Pokemon Sword and Shield are very accessible games. To the point, like, they handheld, handheld you the whole way through and none of the, like, forests or caves are hard to navigate, so it shouldn't be hard to get lost on like the first game where it was kind of easy to get lost at times so so yeah as long as the kid can read pokemon sword and shield would be age appropriate as well so it's kind of like if you ever played final fantasy uh, mystical quest it was kind of like that because that was like the first final fantasy game that kind of held your hand and just showed you around yeah i've never played mystical quest but uh I'll take your word for it. Yeah, my, yeah my, my brother Sword had it back is, in the day. Yeah, Sword and Shield is hand-holdy to a fault. As, like, a full Pokemon game, I think it pales compared to a lot of the older games in the series, but for your first exposure to the series, I don't think you can go wrong with Sword and Shield. Like, they're very good introductory games. The characters are fun enough, the story is easy enough to follow, it's hard, almost impossible to get lost, and it's pretty damn impossible to lose. So it's very much a kid-friendly game. I think for me, another thing I think about when I think of Pokemon is the Super Smash Brothers series because they've added mm. quite a few of the Pokemon characters. They originally did Pikachu in the first one. And what do they do in the other ones? Jigglypuff, I think, was in... No, Jigglypuff was in the original Smash Bros, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. It was yeah, then. and then in, the, in Melee, they added... Pichu and Mewtwo, then in Brawl they took Mewtwo and Pichu but added the Pokemon Trainer and I don't think they added anyone no, and they added Lucario, then they added uh, Greninja, then they added uh, Incineroar and the Pokemon Trainer is cool because you get to switch between uh, Squirtle, Charizard, and Ivysaur mm -hmm. so it's like three characters in one Sort of how, like, uh, Zel if you're playing Zelda, 
in melee, she'd transform into Sheik and back. I didn't really play a ton of Zelda back in the day, to be honest with you. Did you I thought, did you beat Ocarina or... No, Ocarina, I never beat. Majora's Mask, I never beat. I never beat any of the Zelda games, to be honest with you. Really? Yeah. Because I know Chelsea and I have been playing through... Uh, yeah, I went through uh, Ocarina, and I cleared through it in about, I want to say, two weeks. Okay. And it was just kind of pick up and play whenever. Uh, it's funny, because it turns out I'm a bit of a black sheep, because I found the Water Temple pretty easy. Yeah, I think that's probably where I got frustrated the most back in the day when I did play Zelda, was trying to beat the water tower level. I was just like, fuck this. Well, it's like the, the thing that I realized that make, makes it difficult for kids is the fact that it's a lot of vertical reasoning. So pretty much every dungeon up to that point, you could basically think about the dungeon as like a, a stacks of 2D planes. Mm-hmm where they didn't really do much in, much interesting stuff in the third dimension. While the water temple requires you to backtrack, which pretty much none of the other temples really require you to do. So, like, the water temple requires you to backtrack, and it requires you to think in terms of height as well as terms of X and Y space. And that makes it legitimately more difficult than the others. And, like, kids aren't very good at that sort of uh, three-dimensional spatial reasoning. And the other thing is, is one of the necessary keys is a little obscure. So if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. But also, if you're not paying attention to your map, you'll miss the, you'll miss the door. And uh, if there's one thing that kids are 100% world-around known at being good at, it's paying attention 100% of the time to everything. So, Adam, I really hope that you appreciated us talking about pokemon for your little guy i know tim and i certainly enjoyed talking about it didn't you tim oh fun stuff fun stuff so one thing we didn't actually talk about is the games of the week because we got three games this week we've got tomorrow night and calgary to play the flames and thursday and saturday we are in vancouver to play the canucks i'm not gonna lie it's gonna be nice to not have a weird-ass time these games because like the Montreal game was 2pm start the I think one of the Winnipeg games was a 4pm start like, it was just, it's just been weird times all week yeah well how do you think so well how do you think the people on the east coast feel when the Sens come out west because their games are like at 10 o'clock at night usually they can take one for the team that's true until next week guys I am your host Tudor Gibson and this has been Tim Jensen go Sens guys Woo!